to the Cinema Show, where we bring you movie news, reviews, and insights right here on our podcast. I'm Dylan Martin. Here with me is Jackson. Hey guys, what's up? And our lovely Lori. Oh, hello fellows. I'm just really glad to be allowed on the cinema show today. I just don't want to be a bother in the way or in any trouble at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and here I was about to open with a heartwarming speech saying I finally get to have both of you on the show at the same time. (laughs) Oh, shoots. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Slap. Oh, sorry. Didn't see you there. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. My face got in the way of your hand. Lori, you sound like a woman stuck in the 1930s. Speaking of that decade, we are continuing (laughs) to celebrate March of the Monsters with a review of the original King Kong film from 1933. This is an anticipation of Godzilla vs. Kong, which premieres in theaters and on HBO Max on March 31st. But first, let's recap the 78th Golden Globes. We talked about the nominations, and now let's talk about the winners, starting off with Best Drama. We have The Father, Mank, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. And the winner is Nomadland. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had voted for uh, Promising Young Woman. I have yet to watch Nomadland. I've seen it. Is it streaming yet? I've seen it. Yeah, it's on Hulu. That's right. Nomadland is actually coming out at a couple theaters close by to me, so I'll definitely oh, catch watch it, it there. Watch it there, because I would have loved it even more if I saw it in a the theater. I already know that. Lori, have you watched Nomadland yet? I did watch it, and you know what? I should have known something in my gut. Remember when I told you I was having trouble? I was really having trouble in this category between Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of Chicago 7. Um, That's what I was between, too. I yeah. I between those three. And you know what? I should have gone with my gut because, you know, Frances McDormand never lets me down. I should have known three billion, you know, three billboards. Uh, she she stole in my heart since Fargo. And I loved her in this film as well. Mm-hmm. But um, and then Promising Young Woman, though. Oh, my gosh. But I did have to check myself. Because there was a lot more in me that I just loved the idea of a woman just like getting these guys <laughs> and like just, you know, no spoilers. But uh, I, I loved the idea of promising young women, I, the storyline. And I just thought, you know, the movie overall was just great. But then in the end, I ended up going with the trial of Chicago 7. But I did not get that point. No. All of these movies are so wildly different from each other. Yeah, I was surprised by the win here, but that's only because of how tough the competition was. All these movies are still on my watch list, and going based off just what's on paper, I win with The Trial of the Chicago 7. Another surprise that came to me was in the Best Musical or Comedy category. We have Hamilton, Music, Palm Springs, The Prom, Borat Subsequent Movie Film, and Borat Juan. I have to tell you, I didn't expect Borat to win. Really? Yes, solely on the fact that Hamilton was on there. No, I didn't think they were going to. Really? I'm surprised because whenever y'all sent that, I was like, did y'all really think Hamilton was going to win this category? Borat won in 2006, so I thought they were just going to do it again. I really didn't think they were going to give it to Hamilton. See, I had Hamilton as the front runner since its debut. I'm not saying it was the safest choice. It just had all the signs that pointed in its favor. I'm still on the fence whether or not it should have been nominated in the first place, given it was a production filmed years ago. But nonetheless, it was a hit. 
See, I think that's what happened with me. Like, in my mind, I was like, well, I don't think it should be on here. So I don't think it's even going to win. Like, I didn't even count it. I counted it out from the get-go. So maybe that's on me. Maybe I shouldn't have uh, disqualified it so much. Yeah, I wasn't mad at it being nominated, and I'll tell you why. Um, the, it emerged after the pandemic, whenever people were trying to figure out a way to, one, get entertainment out to people. Broadway has taken a huge hit from everything that has happened since the shutdown. And the fact that Hamilton was at the forefront of releasing itself whenever, I mean, my goodness, you know how much money they made uh, throughout the years on their ticket sales on Broadway? And just coming straight out with it and saying, we're going to be streaming Hamilton to you, to our viewers, because we are in unprecedented times. And so, you know, Broadway and stage has always been extremely elitist when it comes to putting stuff out because they want people to go out there. They want people to buy the tickets. It just wasn't an option. And they were the first musical that really put it out there and said, no, we're going to put this out for the audience and we're going to put this out for the viewers. So I feel like it was a huge Band-Aid on a lot of things going on in entertainment at the time. So I didn't mind that it was nominated. Uh, but it also didn't break my heart that it didn't win. But I really thought it was going to. Well, it was originally going to come out this year in July. They just moved it up a year and just throwed it on Disney, uh, threw it on Disney+. Plus. It was originally going to come out in theaters. They were going to charge $15 to go see this movie. But now they just charge 8 bucks a month. So, yeah. And that would have been weird, seeing Hamilton in a movie theater, but not in a live theater that would have been even more jarring i think yeah i think being able to see it at home made it more acceptable for a lot of people did anybody watch music yet no no but funny enough uh the performing arts studio dance studio that i work at got a shout out from abby lee miller this week uh, it was actually the night before last night. She shouted out on us out on her Instagram because we're going to have competition coming up in a week. And she was like, good luck to Stage Canvas Dance Company, Kingsville, Texas, because one of the girls at our dance company uh, sends her a lot of stuff, you know, messages her a lot, things like that. So she uh, <laughs> and I told Dylan about it, of course. And Dylan was just like, oh, wow. You know, do you think that, you know, she still gets revenue from a lot of the girls whose career she helped to start like Jojo? And I said, are you kidding? She probably got some stuff off of music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure she did, especially with Maddie Ziegler in there. Now, what about the prom? It's on my list, but it's not my highest priority when it came to catching up on these nominated movies. Yeah. Did anyone watch the prom? I know Lori has. What did you think? Okay, definitely. I did not think it was going to win. There was no way it was going to win, but I love the concept of it. I think com a musical compared, the prom compared to Hamilton, you know, of course, Hamilton's the superior musical for me, but I love the prom. I love the whole idea of it. I love the concept of it. The songs that are coming out of it, I'm already starting to look at, you know, as I'm sure so many theaters are and performing art studios for numbers for next year. Uh, and it just has a great message to it. And I just loved everything about it. But I did not feel like it was going to win. I feel like it had no chance. I thought the underdog here was Palm Springs with Andy Samberg, yeah. which is why I picked it for yeah. this category. I knew it wasn't going to win, but I had hope for the little guy. Palm Springs was great. I loved it. If Borat didn't win, I would have wanted Palm Springs to win. I really liked Palm Springs. I tell you, we're going to see so much come out of Andy Samberg in the years to come. Dude, oh my gosh. Yes, and I think that this is just more evidence of it, but I can't wait to see what he does in the future. This is his first, like, uh, well, no, not his first, but this is, like, 
is this his first post SNL? Because was Pop Star during SNL, right? I think it was during that transitional period that every SNL mm-hmm. alum goes through. They're still on the cast, but you don't see them as much because they're venturing out to movies or even television shows. But they're yeah. taking that next leap in their career. He also had his Lonely Island crew. What was that baseball project they did for Netflix? Oh, it's kind of in that same, uh, like the tour de pharmacy or whatever, right? Like that same kind of vein. Oh my gosh. I have not seen or heard about this. Oh, you haven't? No. That's why y'all are saying all this. I'm like, what? Because as soon as y'all say tour de pharmacy, because I remember tour de pharmacy is one of my favorites. I told everybody, you have to watch this. Tour de pharmacy is Yeah, great. they made tour de pharmacy, then they made a tennis one, and then a baseball one, right? Right. I'm going to look this up. Yes, check it out. It should still be on Netflix. I'll be honest, Borat winning was a bit of a shock to me, but that's only because I personally didn't enjoy it as much as compared to the original. Really? I loved it. I think the first Borat has aged incredibly well. I saw it for the first time over quarantine, and I'm like, holy crap, this still is really good. I think it's it's not more so like a, a matter of it like aging well, if that makes sense, but more so it's definitely a time capsule. Uh, it's a look back at just what was normalized back then. And I think we're not going to appreciate this one as much until later. But even then, I don't know. It, the second one's a different movie from the first one, for sure. So it's hard to compare the two directly. I was expecting to be incredibly let down by the second one. And I was so surprisingly not. Me too. Because I felt like it continued to push those buttons. And it made me feel uncomfortable just as much as the first one did, if not more so. And there's a brilliance in it. I understand the style. It's very much so reminiscent of Andy Kaufman, who was way before ahead of his time. And so he was completely misunderstood at the time when he was trying to put out this, you know, flipping a mirror on society itself, on the audience, and forcing them to take a hard look at themselves. And that's why it made you so uncomfortable, because it brought up those feelings within you. And I think he has a brilliant way, Sasha Baron Cohen, of doing that, not only in the first one, but even in this second one there were so many of those moments where you're like oh my goodness you know and you're seeing it and you're like oh and those there's so many parts where you want to turn it off or I did where I wanted to stop it where I kind of looked down I was like oh no, no no I can't see this I can't see this it's too it's too much and yeah especially that scene with him at the rally exactly exactly but it's the st- it's the stuff that we He doesn't put out the pretty stuff. He doesn't put out the stuff that we want to see. He puts out the stuff that we don't want to see. And there's a brilliance in that that I complete. I'm a fan. I am a fan. Maybe this Borat sequel will age better for me in the future. I'll just give it a few years, let it rest, and I'll revisit it later down the road. But hey, congratulations to Sasha Baron Cohen. Moving on to Best Director, we have Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, David Fincher for Mank, Regina King for One Night in Miami, Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Yeah, Chloe Zhao won. She's the second woman to do so. The first one was Barbara Streisand for Yentl, and a woman has not won since. Is that right? Yeah, the second woman only to ever win Best Director at the Golden Globes. I did not know that. Wow. Mm -hmm. And she's been winning every directing award everywhere, except for like one, and that's Spike Lee for The Five Bloods. But she's been winning. She's been sweeping. It's incredible. This gets me even more excited for Nomadland. You're going to love it, Dylan. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like it's just hitting too close to home for me. You know, like a woman, you know, has to like, 
be forced to live you know <laughs> she's getting older <laughs> every her children have sucked everything out of her and now she's you know just on the move going from place to place from port to port talking to every sailor that'll listen to it no i'm joking but you know i i really felt like it was a call to arms especially last year and the year before whenever it became very vocalized you know hey we need more represent representation in Hollywood for these female directors and what they did was they took it as a, a, a war cry saying like okay it's time for us to stand up and and put some quality stuff out there and my gosh even looking at the category you just see that that these women just stepped up to the plate and they just knocked all these movies out of the park this year and it we're lucky for it. Yeah, shout out to Regina King and Emerald Fennell for their nominations as well. So good. So let's move on to Best Screenplay. We have Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. We have Jack Fincher for Mank. I'm assuming they're brothers. It's his daddy. That's his dad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his dad wrote the script. Oh, that's so cool. Then we have Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of the Chicago 7. We have Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. And we have... Two writers for The Father, we have Florian Zeller and Christopher Hampton. And the winner, of course, I mean, who didn't see this coming? Aaron Sorkin. I mean, it's not fair to have him there. Can he be disqualified from the best screenplay category? He's, like, too good at this point. <laughs> He's too good. <laughs> also notice how we have Emerald Fennell, Aaron Sorkin, and Chloe Zhao also not only being directors, but writing for these movies as well, so... That's that's always nice to see. But what do you guys think of the trial of the Chicago 7? It's definitely like screenwriting. You can definitely tell is a strong suit. He hasn't directed much, so I, I, he just needs to refine his craft when it comes to that. But the screenplay definitely shines in that movie. Like while I was watching, I'm like, holy crap. He always does the most whenever he makes a movie, whenever he writes a movie. And it really shows through in this one. And it's so good. An Aaron Sorkin film is always going to be filled with authenticity. They said that he went back and he did not change those court transcripts. He kept so much of the original court transcripts in there. And at first I was like, oh, well, then did he really write it? No, no, he did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like cheating to me. No, joking. But no, it, it was fantastic. And he really has a way of incorporating all of that to where it flows in such a beautiful way. And I just thought the entire cast, uh, brilliant, brilliant writing. And all of them, you know, just completely shined in this. Um, and Sasha Baron Cohen as well. What did you think of his accent in that in that movie, Laurie? Who, Sasha Baron Cohen's? Yeah. I thought it, what did, I thought it was good. I didn't have a problem. Of course, you did hear the slip every once in a while, especially when he mm -hmm. was talking to the crowds, like when he was in uh, doing his kind of, you know, stand up rally type stuff where he's talking to all of them. There was a couple of slips that I heard, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I loved it. I, I it oh, didn't yeah. Take For me the most part, it. it was. Yeah. yeah. Didn't take me out of it at all. Completely impressed by him. Completely. Mm -hmm. And he totally deserved that nomination. 100%. 100%. And, you know, it makes me think about how he would have really done. And I thought, you know, uh, you know, a fine job was done in the Queen movie. But I think about what if they had given him the Freddie Mercury role because he was campaigning for it for the longest time. Well, he was attached to it. And what happened is just script problems the members of the surviving members of Queen wanted it to be more of a Queen movie and not a Freddie Mercury movie. And Sasha wanted it to be a Freddie movie. And so 
they weren't budging, so he just ultimately left the project, and they found someone who would do the movie. Yeah. And it got Rami Malek the Oscar, so. And I thought he was fantastic, yes. Next, we have Best Foreign Language Film. We have Another Round, La Llorona, The Life Ahead, Minari, and Two of Us. And the winner is Minari, which I picked. Mm-hmm. Lori, have you seen it yet? I have not. Oh, you're going to love it. I know. I know. So I chose Minari on the best mm-hmm. foreign language film only because I had heard so many good things. But then uh, ever since it actually got uh, voted on, The the Life Ahead. Uh, don't sleep on that one. Uh, I hadn't seen it when the Golden Globes came out. I still have yet to watch it, but I've been looking more into it. And it's because of the best original songs, which I'll talk about later. But it's uh, Sophia Loren is tied to this project. It's Italian. Uh, And it's about an older woman who takes in a young orphan boy. Uh, So it's somebody at the end of their life and it's somebody at the beginning of their life who kind of need each other and they come together. And I think that's pretty much the premise of it. But like I said, I haven't seen it yet. Of course, Sophia Loren, though, is incomparable. And they're saying that her performance in it is just insane. Uh, and her attachment to it is just insane. Um, uh, and of course, it's been getting a lot of viz. I, I really can't wait to see what the Oscar nominees bring because uh, I want to see how much of it comes up during Oscar season. But I can tell you right now, 100% certainty, that song that they wrote for that foreign film is coming back. With a vengeance. And here's what I always do. And like I said, uh, but I I digress. I'll get more into it when we get to that category uh, with best original song. But yes, The Life Ahead, don't sleep on that. Uh, I know that's one of the first ones I'm going to watch as soon as I can. Well, hopefully I get to watch that movie, adding it to the list here. Do you all know about uh, Another Round? It's got Mad Mickelson, and it's about him and like uh, these four high school teachers. They're all buddies, and uh, they just start drinking all day, every day. And at first it's a party, you know, but slowly it devolves into alcoholism and all the struggles that it deals with that. And uh, I think he won Best Actor at a couple festivals for it. But um, apparently it's really good. Apparently it's like super funny in the beginning and then it gets super depressing. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, and Mad Mickelson, like, he always, he's always great no matter what he does. Let's move on to now for Best Animated Film. We have The Crudes, A New Age. Onward, Over the Moon, Soul, and Wolfwalkers. And the winner is Soul, which I picked. I mean, was anyone surprised by this? Not at all. I'm not, but I will tell you this one kind of got me. I was not sure which one I was going to go with. Uh, I was stuck between Soul and Onward, Um But that was another one that I had to sit back and ask myself, was it more of an emotional nostalgic tie? And uh, I've been trying to do that a little bit more like, okay, Lori, like, yes, I know. Because my first knee jerk reaction was onward. Uh, And I had a very special tie to it. Just a wonderful story about, you know, these two brothers losing their father at a very young age who they never really got to know. And then magically in this magical world where magic used to exist, their father uh, gives his son this spell that's going to bring him back, but they mess up halfway through and only the bottom half of him comes back. <laughs> and they have to go and get the top half of him and they spend the entire day because he's only going to be there for 24 hours. So then they go on this quest and they're they're trying to find him. And in the end, you know, I don't want to spoil the end for everybody, but it's just such a heartfelt movie, you know, about 
you know, loss and about love and about the people who may not necessarily be the ones who you wanted there your whole life, but they're exactly what you needed. Um, and uh, it was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic hit. And I saw it with my dad oh. who died of COVID <laughs> during the pandemic. I'm so sorry. No, you're, you're totally fine. I don't need fine. to get emotional. But... Um, when I saw that it was nominated for Best Animated Film, uh, that's the one that just sticks out to me for that reason. But the greatest thing about all of that is that it does give you that comfort. <clears throat> and Soul was, of course, the first animated movie, big animated movie I watched after my father passed because he used to uh, take me and my kids to always go and watch the animated films. It was kind of our little thing. And Soul was fantastic because... It, it was cathartic in a whole other way about the afterlife and about what life is really all about. So they both hit me close to home. But at the end of the day, I had to go with Onward because it was the last movie I saw with my dad. So, yeah, but I'm not mad that Soul won. Both coming from Pixar. Yes, both from Pixar. Way to go, Pixar. My goodness. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about Pixar here. Right now, they are in this transitional period in so many different ways. Their art style and themes are evolving, but so is their team. We talk about diversity within a workplace and giving opportunities to those who have been misrepresented. Well, Pixar has been a great example on how to address these issues. Peter Doctor, director of Soul, brought on Kent Powers, who started off on this project as just a consultant, but had such insight and influence on the characters and story that he was asked to step in the co-director's chair. Yes, he wrote uh, One Night in Miami. That's right. So I'm excited to see where Pixar continues to go with this new path and hashtag bring back Newt. <laughs> <laughs> he will not rest. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on to the acting categories, starting off with best actor for drama. We have Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Tahar Rahim for The Mauritanian. The winner here is Chadwick Boseman. I had picked Riz Ahmed because Sound of Metal is great and he carries that movie so well. He was my second choice. Yes. Not taking anything away from Chadwick Boseman, I thought he gave a powerful performance. Okay, so I, I believe I told Dylan about this and I'll bring it up now. Uh, this takes me back to... Um, Woody Allen, and when I see his movies, when Woody Allen, he's always written, directed, produced, uh, parts weren't coming his way, so he made parts for himself. He wrote the parts, he produced the films, he directed them, he started them. But in them, when he was younger, he would always start in the parts that were written from his perspective. As he got older, I think somebody finally checked his ego and said, you cannot play these roles anymore. You're getting too old. You have to start bringing other people in. Hence, when he did Everyone Says I Love You and he brought in Edward Norton. You know, when he does Midnight in Paris and he brings in Owen Wilson. And they all kind of, all of the actors who come in in those parts always do kind of a Woody Allen-esque performance and I always tell myself oh so that's the part that Woody Allen wrote for himself but he knows he's too old to play he knows that's that's past his time I have to say August Wilson I always associate so closely with Denzel Washington and when I saw Fences you know he directed it he was in it and I love Denzel I saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and first of all standout 
Miss Viola Davis, oh my goodness. And we'll get into Mm -hmm. that. But right now, we're talking about Chadwick Bosman. And the first thing that I thought when I saw the role was, oh my goodness, what a young Denzel would have done with this. And let me tell you why. And I will reference the movie Glory, where he played a soldier, a Union soldier. And the scene where he is getting lashed he has to take his coat off and he's getting lashed on his back and he looks it's a it's a full frontal camera shot it's a close-up and there's no clenched jaw there's no oh gritted teeth he looks at the camera and the tears start coming out of his eyes but they're so unforced and it is the thing, it, it's the predominant thing that sticks out in my mind for a movie that went on to win several awards that year. But that is what made Denzel was the performance and glory. That's when people stood up and they were like, oh my goodness, this guy is not just a great actor. This guy is what, going to be one of the greatest actors of all time. When I watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I loved Chadwick, but there were parts where I wanted him to hide it that emotion a little bit more. I feel like he went for it and then he exploded a few times. I only wanted the one explosion. Mm -hmm. To me, so much is about holding back. Mind you, I still voted for him whenever I did these picks. I still made my pick for him because of the circumstances, circumstances surrounding it. The fact that he was very sick at the time. The fact that he had a lot of help at the time. And I thought under the circumstances, he gave a brilliant performance. Yeah, that's the thing that you have to keep in mind is that he was sick and dying. The fact of the matter, while he was making this movie and all of his movies, really. But to deliver that kind of performance when you're that sick, it's incredible. He he persevered. He's oh, he's going to be missed he's already missed and his presence is already felt and i just wish that he got more time i do agree with you laurie his performance could have been more gradual as a build-up towards that powerful monologue but from the jump he was just intense the whole way through yeah and that high level just had nowhere to go moving forward the next category here is best actor in a comedy or musical We have Sasha Baron Cohen for Borat's subsequent movie film, James Corden for The Prom, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton, Andy Sandberg for Palm Springs, and Dev Patel for The Personal History of David Copperfield. So I just want to say something right off the bat. Leslie Odom Jr. won the Tony for Best Actor in a Musical for Hamilton, uh, and Lin-Manuel Miranda was nominated alongside him. And Leslie Odom Jr. won. So I'm not exactly sure why the HFPA decided to nominate Lin-Manuel here instead of Leslie Odom Jr. You could say that they didn't want to double nominate him, but they just double nominated Sasha Baron Cohen. Maybe they didn't want two double nominees, but like if the performance is worth it, which I think it is, and I think Leslie Odom Jr. was better and had a better performance uh, than Lin-Manuel in Hamilton. So I'm I'm just not exactly I don't agree with him being nominated, but everything uh, and James Corden. But I haven't seen the prom, so I won't say anything about that. But Borat, 
That's right, Sasha Baron Cohen wins for Borat's subsequent movie film. And with this and the trial of the Chicago 7, what a year this man has had. Yeah. James Corden, though, I don't know how I feel about this guy. <laughs> just in general? Yeah, from what I've seen in trailers of The Prom, it looks like he's just playing himself. Laura, you're the only one who's watched The Prom here. Is James Corden the same as he is in like his late night talk show? By the way, they're not really driving that karaoke car. No, they're not. It's all a ruse. And they thought they were slick. They thought they could lie to us. I see. I see you. See, I prefer... Okay, first of all, James Corden is just like this uber musical fan. And I appreciate him for being so. He kind of... And I'm probably going to regret saying this as soon as I say it. He kind of reminds me of the equivalent of what Rosie O'Donnell was to musicals. She played all the leads. She played Rizzo because she was such a fan. So she played Rizzo. She played all these other roles. And then James Corden comes along. He plays the baker and in Into the Woods. He's playing all this because cats. he brings... Remember cat? Cats. <laughs> I exactly. wish I didn't. I wish I didn't. Exactly. But they were both these talk show hosts you know, male and female, like there are both these talk show hosts that bring this attention to the musical theater world. So they incorporate them into their world to make sure that they're still getting, you know, this high viz from them. But James Corden, he kind of reminds me of the equivalent of Rosie O'Donnell when it comes to the musical world. Mind you, I love him. You know, I love seeing him perform because he's having such a great time that I'm having such a great time. But that's about where it ends for me. That's fair. Well, good for him. He seems like he's having a good time. Who am I to judge? Lori, what did you think about Lin-Manuel? I love Lin-Manuel. I love him. I loved him in Hamilton. It's good. It's worth it. But, uh, Lori, I'm not sure if you've heard my rant on Hamilton before. No. Um, but I think Lin-Manuel is a detriment to that production. <laughs> I think Lin-Manuel knows he's the least talented one, like, as far as a stage performer. I don't think he knows that. I really think he has an ego about himself. Really? I tend to think yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, I just, he, no, he, he posts pictures, he posts selfies all the time, or he has posted selfies in the past where he is posing for the camera where he's biting his lip and it looks horrible. He th- It's his ego and it's just like, he, he should not have been Hamilton. I think if he had more foresight that he should have delegated that role to someone else, I think it's great, it's a fantastic show. The writing that he had to do for it is impeccable. I cannot understate that enough. He was, it's a great musical, but him in the role, I just don't think it works. I don't think he's good in the role. Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda, stop biting your lip, please, on behalf of Jackson. (laughs) An answer to the whole Leslie Odom Jr., though, a lot of the cast, especially when they're going into the awards, they have to fill out categories for it. It's not always the actors, Mm -hmm. it's usually the producers, but they usually do try to space those things out if they can, uh, as far as not creating any conflict within between the actors themselves much l- yeah it's all politics and money. oh absolutely it all goes back to the old feud of joan crawford and betty davis when they did who's afraid of baby jane you know uh and in that one they perpetuated a rivalry because they were trying to get more people to come out and see them but what it ended up doing they were using these actresses at the time to you know garnish more money for the production companies themselves, and they ended up essentially ruining these women's career because they just became tabloid jokes after that. 
which is heartbreaking. But uh, I mm-hmm. think nowadays people are a little bit more sensitive to that, and I think they try to avoid such scandal. Yeah, people don't respond the same way when you pit two women against each other than if you were to do it back then. Oh, really? <laughs> That's a matter of opinion. That is a huge matter of opinion. I've never seen a guy who didn't enjoy seeing two girls fight over him. Well, oh, that that's not what I meant. <laughs> no, no, no. But I no, it is though. It is though. And you didn't see it from that point of view when he made the comment, but as from a female perspective, women are constantly being pit against each other and it's laughable. Well, it no, is that, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah, well like that's the thing. But like nothing's changed. nowadays it's frowned upon. N- well, like, not- <laughs> it, it's more so frowned upon. It, it should be. It it's, should be. It, but it's, yes, it's in no that's way. That's what I'm trying to it, say. In no but, way, yeah. yeah, it in no way has gone away. It's not an ideal society. It's not perfect, but it's it's a different. I'm just going to shut up. It's the same. You're the authority on this one. Yes, it's the same reason. No, look at it. You see it now day in, day out. And now our culture has become even worse when it comes to this. Back in the old days, it used to be like, oh, are they boyfriend and girlfriend? Are they this and that? But nowadays, everything's so open and nothing has labels. But then when a guy, you find out that a guy is seeing another girl, the girls don't get mad at the guy. I mean, don't hate the player, Mm -hmm. hate the game. Girls villainize each other. We're crabs in a bucket. Women are put in a bucket because they know they won't let each other rise to the top because they'll drag each other down before anybody gets out of the bucket before them. We live in a society where women have been programmed from a very young age to see each other as their competition and that Mm -hmm. the man is a reward to be won. And... And that's all manufactured. Yeah, it's all manufactured and it's perpetuated to this day. I mean, everybody loves a good cat fight. So they say. After a brief discussion with my lawyer, I don't have any type of opinion of this matter. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to our last actors category, Best Supporting Actor. We have Sasha Baron Cohen again for The Trial of the Chicago 7, Jared Leto for The Little Things, Bill Murray on The Rocks, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, and David Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Daniel. And winner here, which I did pick, Daniel Kaluuya. Deservedly so. Judas and the Black Messiah, what a movie. I know we haven't really gave our review or anything, but it's award season, so we're going to be talking about a lot of these movies yes during these episodes i left the theater speechless i don't i had no idea about this true life story and now i'm so eager to watch that pbs documentary that deals with this event it's called eyes on the prize oh my gosh yeah yeah i still can't wrap my head around how the fbi got away with this it's crazy what the FBI gets away with when they label someone as a public enemy. But Daniel Kaluuya gives a powerful performance. Bravo. That's all I have to say. Completely deserving. It was just so amazing. And then, of course, knowing like when you see both it all films, worked out for the me, trial then. I already Seven, watched Black- and then Judas and the Black Messiah, you see some of the controversy that has been stirred up essentially with some of this saying that, you know, the trial of the Chicago seven, you know, kind of brushed over his story in there. But I also kind of, well, I mean, that wasn't the service. That wasn't the point of trial of Chicago seven. It's not talking about Fred Hampton. If they were, it would, it would have just distracted from the movie and the whole pacing would have been thrown off. So, I mean, Fred Hampton wasn't important to that story. It's an important story, but it's not important to what Aaron Sorkin was trying to do with that film. And I'm very glad that we have this film to tell that story and they make for a great double feature i was telling dylan he should watch trial right after he watches judas 
Yes, but watch Judas first. Mm-hmm. I did tell my friends that. And I said, in no way, because I completely agree with you on this, Jackson. I think they were completely separate from each other. I don't understand what their controversy came in. But I do agree. I always tell everybody, watch Judas and the Black Messiah, then watch Trial of the Chicago 7. It all worked out for me then. I already watched the Black Messiah, and now I just need to catch Chicago 7. But can't recommend Judas and the Black Messiah enough. Just know it's not an easy watch, especially that ending. Yeah, the last 15 minutes are brutal. In the trial of Chicago 7, Dylan, it has them in there right after the his death happened. And it has them sitting in the courtroom. And because there was court that following day and they're all sitting there and you just see they're just tears. Oh, wow. Street faces of people that were sitting in the courtroom and it's just so heartbreaking, so symbolic. And I didn't see them that way. I saw the trial of Chicago 7 first, then I saw Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, that's that's how they came out, and that's how I saw them too. Yeah, and I keep telling everybody, if you haven't seen them, watch them the other way. Watch Judas and the Black Messiah, then watch trial. Hey, Laura, did you watch The Little Things? I didn't. Mm. Well, if you never get around to it, you're not missing much. Yeah, I mean, I think you would enjoy it enough, but... um. Yeah. If anything, watch it for Denzel. Okay. I wonder if you and I are going to have the same complaint then, because I'm, I'm not going to tell you mine if you don't know it already, if you haven't listened to our episode. Uh, but uh, watch the movie first if you can, um, and then uh, I would love to talk about it. Okay. Now we're getting into the actresses categories, starting with best actress in a drama. We have Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman, and Andrew Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday. And she's the one who ultimately won, which is interesting because she's not even nominated for the SAG Awards. And she's going up against some heavy hitters in this category. Yeah, she is. Frances McDormand and Viola Davis alone, but then when you have the other two performances, which are great within their own right, it's like... The odds were stacked against each other, and I didn't think she was going to win. I didn't think she had a chance. Honestly, I was rooting for Frances McDormand because I have a bias and I love her, but I did pick Viola Davis. So did I. Ugh. I thought Carrie Mulligan was going to take it, but I think Viola earned, deserves it um, out of all of these, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Yeah, Viola Davis, the second she was on screen in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I was like, oh my god. I Such a small yet powerful role. It's magnetic. It's like the, everything is focused on her. Every single frame she's on screen. It's incredible. Yeah, so good. Ugh. Next category is Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. We have Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film. Kate Hudson for Music, Michelle Pfeiffer for French Exit, Roseman Pike for I Care A Lot, and Anya Taylor-Joy for Emma. And the winner here was Roseman Pike. I picked Roseman Pike, but I was rooting for Anya Taylor-Joy because I really enjoyed Emma. And Lori, I know you mentioned Onward was the last movie you watched in theaters before the pandemic, Well, mine was Emma, 
Did you get the chance to watch it? I have, and I'm so upset because my dad wanted to go see it so badly when it came out. But I was like, Dad, the kids don't want to see Emma. Let's go and watch Onward. And so we went, and then when we shut down, he was like, and I didn't even get to watch Emma because he loves, That's he great. loves Jane Austen. I know. He was like your typical, stereotypical, but for some reason, my dad couldn't pass up a good Jane Austen film. I would have never guessed Neither that about would I Yeah. <laughs> He loves Jane Austen. Go figure. But yes, wherever he was at, he was pulling for Emma. Emma is great. You know, my stance on period films from that specific era has changed ever since Jackson recommended The Favorite. Yeah, it's like as soon as I saw that movie, too, like the same thing. It's like my my eyes were open to a whole nother world of period pieces. I'm like, wait, are these good? Am I Have I been wrong? And yeah, I have been. The last movie I saw in theaters was uh, The Invisible Woman, and Elizabeth Moss, I thought, would be would have been nominated in a category for sure. But it's a horror movie. Yeah, but, I mean, she was still good. I mean, that doesn't mean that Toni Collette shouldn't have been nominated. I thought her performance was nomination-worthy at least, and it's bumming me out to see that she's not on here. Yeah, it's a shame the performances in these great horror movies are pushed to the side when it comes to nominations just because of the genre they come from. Yeah. Lori, I know you were hoping Michelle Pfeiffer would get the win here. I was. Uh, she's just always one of my favorites. Um, I actually didn't see French Exit. Uh, and in this one, I just kind of went with my gut. I had seen, you know, Borat, the subsequent film. And uh, but and I had seen Emma. But um, Michelle Pfeiffer, to me, is just a powerhouse. So on that one, I just went with kind of my favorite. So... That's why I went with Michelle Pfeiffer. I just think she's underrated. And we're down to our last acting category, Best Supporting Actress. We have Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman for The Father, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, and Helena Zengel for News of the World. And the winner here is Jodie Foster. Yeah, and I... I didn't think uh, she would have won because everyone that I, I hadn't seen the movie and the people that I follow uh, were like, yeah, we don't really think Jodie Foster has really got that big of a chance. It's probably going to be Olivia Coleman or Amanda Seyfried, probably. So I didn't. It was a complete surprise. All three of these were all complete surprises to me. Jodie Foster, Roseman Pike and Andre Day. The, they were the underdogs in their category. Lori, you watched Hillbilly Elegy. Ooh, what did you think? I thought it was amazing. Uh, I think it stole one of my ideas because I felt like I was writing this already, you know, just about family. <clears throat> but I won't say any names just to not embarrass anybody. <laughs> but I definitely feel like I know these characters <laughs> in every day to day life. I, I think I even pitched an idea to a short film from y'all moons ago. Uh, and that's exactly what Hillbilly Elegy reminded me of. And wow. I was just like, darn it. But you know what? There's a different take on everything. And I'm still not giving up, you know, my own little personal screenplay on that. But I thought mm -hmm. for sure Glenn Close was going to take it for Hillbilly Elegy. I loved that movie because I know those characters. I'm like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, yup. And I think a lot of people look at a movie like that. And like, how can people be that self-sabotaging? How can people be, you know, how can people really, you know, back themselves into a corner that badly and have you know, no good decision-making skills. And I'm like, oh, I know them. <laughs> I know those people. Uh, so, yeah, to me, uh, that to me was my favorite. But Jodie Foster, I ain't mad at because I love Jodie Foster. And 
you couldn't I couldn't have asked if it wasn't Glenn Close I would have hoped it was her and I'm so happy it was she's one of my favorites oh yeah dude come on I picked Olivia Coleman just from the fact that she's acting alongside Anthony Hopkins and the premise so I thought she would be a front runner but hey you never know what these categories are going to look like at the Oscars so we shall see and our last two categories here for film are Best Original Score. We have Andre Desplat for The Midnight Sky, Ludwig Göransson for Tenet, James Newton Howard for News of the World, and we have two for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, both Mank and Soul. And joining them on Soul is John Baptiste. And the winner here is Soul. Yes, I mean, come on. Soul score was phenomenal. Really quick shout out to Ludwig Göransson, who did Tenet. Uh, he also did the music for The Mandalorian. Yes, and for uh, Black Panther. And he's still early in his career. Yeah, he's young. There's an episode of the gallery from The Mandalorian on Disney Plus that's entirely dedicated to him and how he makes music. It's a fascinating process. You can tell he really loves what he does and how he wants to continue to push boundaries by experimenting with his music. But we got Nine Inch Nails here winning. Yeah. As uh, one of the hosts of the Snake Pit, uh, which is a rock music, I'm like, yes, Trent Reznor. Of course. I don't care what he's nominated in. Actually, the hardest part for me was deciding which movie uh, that he did that I was going to actually vote for. You know, Trent Reznor actually bought the house that the Manson murders took place in um, up in Hollywood Hills where Sharon Tate uh, was murdered. That's weird. Yeah. And he actually, after all of the renovations, the one thing he saved was the door because he Ugh. wanted that front door. And they actually said that he keeps that front door in his recording studio. Also, we have to give huge credit to John Baptiste for composing all the jazz music you hear in Soul. Oh, so good. And both compositions blend so well together. They really do. And our last category of the Golden Globes, we have Best Original Song. We have Fight For You from Judas and the Black Messiah. Hear My Voice from The Trial of the Chicago 7. Eon C from The Life Ahead, Speak Now from One Night in Miami, and Tigress and Tweed from The United States versus Billie Holiday. And Lori got this one. EOC. I voted for it. I never know what I'm doing when it comes to best original song. If it hasn't been in a Disney movie or Pixar movie, I don't know what I'm doing. Did you listen to these songs, Lori? Because I didn't. I did. So you might not be able to watch all of the movies before they come out. But the only category you have no excuse about is the best original song because you can YouTube every single one of them. Close your eyes and listen. And then whichever one touches you or whichever one you feel is the best one, boom, that's it. It literally takes 10 minutes. Yeah. So that's exactly what I do every year. And I don't always miss, I don't always hit. I did Mary Poppins, uh, Mary Poppins 2. I did The Place Where Lost Things Go. Uh, and for Cats, I did, you know, Ghosts. Uh, and But you know what? I always go with my gut. And I did the same thing on this one. And for anybody who has not listened to this song, wow. I heard all the other songs. They all had similar things. 
that uh, they had in common, but there was a lot of repetition, a lot of, okay, we're going to repeat this, we're going to repeat that. This song, though, it was something entirely different, but it shouldn't have surprised me because it's the infamous Diane Warren on here, and Diane Warren brought has brought us so many classics. She's already won so many awards for Best Original Songs, uh, but then in this one, you'll see she teamed up, and it was, uh, you can do the just purely Italian one, but you can also do the one that um, is mixed. It's half English and half Italian. And if you just listen to it, just the message and the song itself, it's breathtaking. The video itself, though, Sophia Loren actually stars in the video. Oh. Also, like there. Well, she hasn't started. She's there towards the end and they take clips from the movie and they integrate it into there. But um, there's a lot of other people that... Um, are in the video for the song as well. But the entire thing is about, you hear a lot of like, speak now, listen to me. Yo, you have all these songs. And this one was just about when nobody else will see you, I I see you. You go through this life so much where you're just not seen. But when you think that you're not, know that I see you. And I guess because I'm a mom <laughs> and with my kids and you know, hearing them come home, you know, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. And um, that's kind of as soon as I heard it, I, if, as a mother, I immediately thought about, you know, my children just like, don't worry, because when nobody else sees you, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah, I need to start listening to these songs. Well, congratulations to all the winners of the Golden Globes. These are always a great kickoff to the award season for film. And let's see what the Academy has to bring at the Oscars. Uh, speaking of winners, uh, who won? Uh, so we did a, our little ballots, and we always have a little competition to see who can uh, pick the most winners that night. Uh, I got 9 out of 14. Wow. Yeah, I lost. I only got maybe 7 out of the 14. Really? And, I mean... Aaron Sorkin, he might as well have been a free bingo space. <laughs> hey, this year was tough. In past years, you can make solid predictions for most of the categories. Like last year, everything was solidified. Brad Pitt won All Best Supporting Actor. Laura Dern won All Best Supporting Actress. Joaquin and uh, uh, Renee Zellweger. They all won all their categories everywhere. But with this one, I don't know who's going to win at the SAGs, I don't know who's going to even be nominated at the Oscars, who's going to win there. It's it's going to be another, um, oh, what was the year with, um, it was with Casey Affleck for, um, what movie? Manchester, it was that one, um, La La Land with Ryan Gosling, and um, some other third movie, um, I think it was one with Denzel, where all three had won separate things right before the Oscars, and everyone was like, well, we don't really know who's going to win. And I feel like that's going to be the case this year. Yeah, Lori, how did you do on your ballot? Yes, out of the film categories, I only got six, right? Ah. Well, I think it was, you know, the actresses that always throw me off. Yeah, all, like all three. They were all surprises. It was like, what's going on? But I mean, good for them. But yeah, it just kind of threw musical, me off. Yeah. I lost on Hamilton. And then... Um, yeah, the actresses totally threw me off. But I got that song this year, which was new. Well, better luck to all of us for next year. We still have the Oscars, mm -hmm. so expect the cinema show to provide a ballot for that. So make sure to keep an eye out for that ballot when the Academy announces their nominations on all our social media platforms at Cinema Show Live.
let's focus on the King of Skull Island. On this episode, we continue March of the Monsters by revisiting the one who started it all, the original King Kong from 1933, directed by Mirren C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schutzek, starring Faye Ray. The synopsis reads, a crew travels to a tropical island for an exotic location scout and discover a colossal ape who captures their leading star. After an adventurous rescue is completed, the eighth wonder of the world is captured and taken to New York City for public display. It's safe to say that King Kong changed history in many ways. This film actually inspired the original Gojira, and I'm sure many other films. It changed filmmaking, but looking back at it, there's no surprise to see how other things have changed compared to that time. I'm just so glad that you two knowledgeable, strong men have me on the cinema show. I don't want to be any trouble. Strong, maybe. Intelligent, no. A man? Well... <laughs> Look, if we're going to talk about a movie or anything from the 1930s, just know things have changed. For the better. For better and for worse, that's for sure. For any movie that came out before 2021, March 6th, it's understandable to know that there might be some sexism. Sexism is just one of the issues <laughs> in this movie. Oh, yes. And some colonialism, some racial issues here. Uh, there is a lot that we're go that's going on here. Yeah. But revisiting the movie that came out almost 100 years ago, did we still enjoy it? What a loaded question. I did. I love King Kong for everything that it is. It's the same reason that I don't believe in this whole culture of going back and re-editing films that were made. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I hate that they go out. This all started for me. Uh, I think I was really upset of all movies that you know this chose to upset me. But I was really upset when I went in to watch the old Bill and Ted movies and I found like was watching it I'm just like wait a second they cut out so much from the original Bill and Ted movie uh and I understood what they did the funny thing was is that I had showed it to my kids right before they pulled it off of cable on demand when they were trying to pump up for the new movie and so I showed it to my kids before and on certain parts I did turn to them because there were some derogatory slurs used and I turned to my kids and I was like kids at the time that's what this meant. This would never fly today. But at the time, you know, we actually watched the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I watched that in my classroom in school. Like with my other classmates, you know, and now it's for something that they can't even they had to pull it and re-edit it just for the common people, like just for the, the mass people to watch, because nowadays that's just not considered, you know, there, there's too many things that need to be pulled and re-edited. And I was like, there, first of all, in history, you, you can't go back and re-edit these things because you lose something in it. Good, bad, or the ugly, they're a part of the mentality of what was going on at the time. And I think to change that is to ignore it. And I think to ignore it is dangerous. I think the appropriate approach and the best approach is what Warner Brothers did with um, the Looney Tunes cartoons. This is uh, whenever they re-released them back in like the 2000s or 2010s on DVD. They put a disclaimer. This is uh, during Obama, which uh, there wasn't this cultural reckoning at this time. Um, but they were ahead of the curve and they were like, look, we know there's 
racial stereotypes. We know there's we we did some bad things with our cartoons, but we just want to know that this doesn't reflect who we are now, and we apologize for what we did. I think as long as you put a disclaimer before the film and you leave that choice up to the audience as to what they want to see other than making that decision for them, then I think we're all good. When it comes to the point of taking stuff out and just altering it from what it originally was, that's when you get into the... You just get into this gray area of uh, uh, the validity of the original piece. And the problem, and this is an extreme example, and I'm going to just say it. If you go through, okay, first of all, Hitler made propaganda films. If you go back and take out everything that's too extreme or offensive out of those films and then just release it the way it is, he doesn't seem like too bad of a guy. Yeah, see, that, that's the other there thing. There is a danger. Yes, there is a danger in editing things. And then you, But the thing that is, one can't be true about without the other. You know, everybody says, well, where's the line? I was like, but that's exactly it. You can't censor those things you can't edit them because the when you start to play with that line nobody can draw that line it's not more morally ethical to uh draw that line it's something that you have to let the audience decide for themselves and i do agree with the disclaimer i do think that that is a great way to approach it but as far as editing these films i i don't agree with it and despite every offense that it gave me it, it was a great reminder of how far we've come when i watched the original king kong you couldn't get away with that today. I was looking at this part and, you know, there's a scene at the very beginning on the boat, you know, and even before that, oh my goodness, how they find this destitute, helpless girl. And they're like, what are you doing here? And then she's like, I don't know. I think I'm supposed to have an uncle somewhere. She's in line for a women's shelter and she, he just takes her out of line, which, okay, by the way, what woman would just go with this random dude on a, like, I'm taking you on a boat out of the middle of nowhere and we're going to be very far away from shore. And she's like, oh, okay. A desperate one who can't find her uncle. Yeah. Oh, correction. The director was scouting for an actress at the woman's soup kitchen line and quickly gave up. It wasn't until we came across a thieving young blonde woman at a newspaper stand, to be fair. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's right. and yeah. they go to a coffee shop where the director, who just saved her from damnation offers her a lead role and a trip to some exotic location. And notice how it's the woman who tries to engage something further, and the man has to be the one to stop her and say, it's strictly business. Yeah, that's... Because that's how Hollywood functions, right? You nonsensical woman, we're not going to do anything. I'm making a film. Which, by the way, there's been movies about movie making since the beginning. Like, good God. Keep in mind... This movie is directed and written by a man from that time. So how women are portrayed in there, uh, that's it's it's not really the truth, is it? Also produced by David O. Selznick, who uh, six years later would produce Gone with the Wind. Oh, fiddle dee dee. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does. And even in Gone with the Wind, let's be honest, the way that Scarlett O'Hara, first of all, Vivian Lee just killed it. She knocked it out of the part and... Mm -hmm. Park and she put nuances in there that I think with any other actress, even though they did want Betty Davis originally in the role, I think with any other actress would have been it wouldn't have come across as well. I think Vivian Lee brought her a certain strength that I don't think it, the way uh, Scarlett O'Hara was written, it could have really been screwed up by the wrong actress. 
Um, so thank goodness for that. But it was essentially the same thing. Uh, even in Gone with the Wind, the woman is portrayed as women use their body to get what they want. Because that's that that's the only thing we have to offer. And speaking of how women are treated or portrayed in the, these movies, the quote unquote love interest here, Jack. Which, by the way, the love interest is not necessary to the overall plot at all. And his acting is as stiff as a board. He's so flat. Uh. That's debatable. I thought he served a purpose, and his acting, I mean, it's okay. It wasn't bad, I thought. But let me bring up a quote of his from the movie. Quote, women can't help being a bother. They were just made this way. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and the way Jack was introduced to Anne, played by Feyre, he's manning the ship, yelling and throwing his hands around. Here comes Anne. She walks right into a slap. But it was unintentional from Jack. But was that even necessary? <laughs> it wasn't even played for laughs. It just kind of happens. And she's like, oh, sorry. He's like, well, hey, come on. You can't be around here. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're in my way. Oh, I'm so sorry. My face got in the way of your fist. And at the end, he looks at her and he laughs. And he was just like, oh, I didn't even apologize. You took quite a wallop there. And she's like, oh. And she's like, ha yeah, I did. And he still doesn't apologize. No, he never apologizes. Now that we've addressed sexism in this movie, that should be it for the King Kong problems, right? Nope, it's the 30s. So now we're on our way to this island, and once the film crew arrives, natives are discovered. Mm, can anybody say colonialism? By the way, real quick, I didn't know that Skull Island was, like, the name from the get-go. I thought that was just something they came up with for the 2014 movie. I thought that just sounded cool. I didn't know that was, like, the name from the get-go. Yeah, so on Skull Island, the natives do this ritual where they sacrifice a woman to this giant ape. As most fathers do. <laughs> My question is, what does Kong do with these women? He was just playing with, the, with Anne. Yeah, he doesn't eat her. He actually takes care of her. Yeah, he protects her and he, like, tears her clothes a little bit. But he's just playing like he's like... And to him, I mean, she's just a little thing that's squirming around in his hand. He thinks he just like she's just like a little worm or something, you know? But what about all the other sacrifices? Before Anne, they were going to give Kong one of their own. Which I'm assuming they do this ritual, like, every Saturday night. I mean, gives TGIF a whole new meaning on that island. Uh, wouldn't you think there would be a woman's club, you know, just hanging around at Kong's cave if he's not eating them? Yeah, or like you'd see a pile of bones or something if it's the opposite, you know? But you don't see anything. My theory is Kong only eats the natives and takes a liking to this foreign woman. I think Kong's racist. I'm going to say it. Sorry. Which also, okay, now that we're uh, talking about Kong's room, real quick, I don't think it's a coincidence that outside of his room he has a balcony, and Beauty and the Beast, right outside of the Beast's room is a balcony. It was Beauty that killed the Beast. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the Beast himself then. King Kong, did you know director Mirren C. Cooper originally wanted to use a real gorilla and have that animal fight a real Komodo dragon? Well, Hitchcock threw real birds at Tippi Hendrix. <laughs> well, then Cooper watched the movie Creations, which had stop-motion animated dinosaurs, which was groundbreaking at the time with those effects. And he decided King Kong and the other creatures would now have to be stop-motion. 
So he brought on Willis O'Brien, who did the stop motion for that movie Creations. And the process back then for stop motion animation was tedious compared to now. So to rely on stop motion for your big monster, your the title of your movie to be believable, that must have been a huge risk for that entire movie. What a gamble. Yeah, and I read Willis O'Brien was so stressed that he would go missing for days and go out on a drinking binge. I mean, I call that a good Memorial Weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And the stop-motion animation on its own took almost a full year. If it wasn't good, it would have broken the film. It literally made the film. And then you have the way that they uh, projected Kong, like how they talk about in that episode of the gallery of The Mandalorian and the making of that where they projected Kong onto the wall or to the backdrop and that's how you had the that's how you had Kong and the real life actors in the same shot. And then you have that one where they're like walking along uh when the Stegosaurus dies and they're just walking in front of it and it's tracking them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They don't just kill that Stegosaurus. They massacre that poor thing. The way nature is represented in this movie is so authentic. It's scary, it's real. I mean, nature is cruel, and it doesn't hold back. And that's all accredited to the work of Willis O'Brien and his stop-motion team. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts is that fight between Kong and that T-Rex. Yeah, that's just them showing off at that point. I mean, Kong knows jujitsu. Yeah. He is flipping and rolling that Rex like it's a game. And there's a specific part that stuck with me. It's right after Kong breaks the T-Rex's jaw, Kong begins to play with that broken jaw a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which he would. He so would. Yeah, I love that so much. It's not the most compelling trait to give to Kong's character, but it's so real. Uh, he's an animal. He's curious. He, Yeah, he's a helpless... He's the victim in this movie, not Anne. It's King Kong. And I think it's a great parallel about how there are so many... The director... Uh, the sailors on the ship, uh, you know, she, this beautiful young woman is this damsel, helpless damsel in distress who's looking for this man to save her, even mentioning I'm supposed to have an uncle somewhere. And out of everybody, she's surrounded by monsters. The only one that's not and the only one who's really trying to save her is King Kong. <laughs> and the prophet said, and lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day... It was as one dead. I had to write that quote down. I loved it. I think it's dumb. Like, as, if you say, yeah, like, as soon as you fall in love, you're as good as dead. You're worthless. Like, I don't no, like that. No, it's not that you're worthless. It's not that you're worthless. It's that you're consumed by it because that's what real love does. It consumes you. If you have any control over it, it's not real love. Because that's a thing. It's like that scene, you know, uh, being in love. And I, I love it. It's the one part of The Greatest Showman that I really love. It's when they show Hugh Jackman and the girl on the rooftop dancing whenever they've just fallen in love. And she goes running off the rooftop. And she goes to the edge of it and she just sticks her hand out because she's going to go over it. And he catches her other hand and pulls her back. The look on her face is if because she, she knows she knows. And you know what? If she falls, she would be completely shocked because she's in love. Everything's going to catch her because she's in love, but she's that close to it. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. It's all consuming, and it's the best kind of love there is. But then that's not anywhere present in the film because it's not really shown that Kong loves Anne, and the love between Anne and the sailor guy, that's not 
real love. At least it, I, we don't think it is today. I, I, I think don't know. The love comes from Kong, and isn't most love? Uh, most loves are not reciprocal especially some of the best ones and i love the love is kong he's the heart of this film not her not fey it's him because she doesn't reciprocate it it's not a real love between her and the sailor the director only loves himself Mm -hmm. the only ounce of humanity is in the monster Mm, there there it is there it is okay I'm on board now. When I was little, my mom used to always try to explain love to me. And she said that in every relationship, there's always somebody that loves more. There's always somebody who's loved more and there's always someone who loves more. And she always would say, what do you want to be? And I remember when I was little, I'd always tell her, well, of course I want to be the one who's loved more because you're loved more. You're That's luckier. And then I remember getting older and it was my first big heartbreak. I was 17 years old and I thought of my I was just never going to be able to get out of bed again. And she looked at me and she said, how lucky you are. And I said, what, mom? And she was like, that you were able to love somebody that much to be able to be broken like that. She goes, you were very lucky. And I said, but mom, it hurts. And she was just like, no, but you don't realize. She says, the people who don't feel that hurt didn't feel the love. She goes, that's how you knew it was real. It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Yeah, the luckier one is the one who can feel that love. And Kong got shot down for it. Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. He goes through it in this movie. By the way, when it came to that scene, both directors said, if we're going to kill the damn thing, we might as well do it ourselves. So the plane you see flying towards the camera right before the final shots go to Kong, it has Cooper, the the director, Mirren C. Cooper, in the pilot's chair and shoots Sack, the co-director, in the back as co-pilot with the gun it's very poetic and i do want to talk about the origins of king kong really quick right now the idea all comes from Miriam c cooper who the director in the movie is heavily based off of he's just as arrogant and uh, charismatic as Miriam c cooper in real life so cooper grew a fascination for aircraft since he was just a kid when the Wright brothers were innovating aviation. As he grew older, he began to read about different cultures around the world and all these types of stories, thus sparking a passion for traveling. As an adult, he started to make documentaries with Ernest B. Schutzsack, so he comes into the picture, and they would go everywhere in jungles, different terrains through South America, Africa, and other places around the world. That's insane. And nowadays, usually directors are inspired by other movies they have watched when making their own movies. But Cooper and Schutzsack actually lived those experiences that you see in Kong. They studied animals, environments, people from all around the world. And so after all the traveling, Cooper comes back to America and works for Pan Am. Uh, Again, his love for aircrafts shows where his office had the perfect viewing of the construction of the Empire State Building. At this time, this was going to be the biggest, tallest building in New York City and probably the world. So this is Cooper's entire life all coming together. This moment sparks an idea of a giant ape climbing the Empire State Building and the rest is history. Wow. Look how far one person's imagination can take them and change the world. Remember, King Kong came out towards the end of the Great Depression. This movie, in a way, saved America's spirit. 
People called this movie the great escape. Families were, even though they were dead broke, they still saved enough money to come and watch Kong in the theater. This was their way to get out from those hardships and feel happy, feel entertained, feel something. I can't wait to see some sort of future show in the year 3000 talking about, um, you know, oh my goodness, this was these were some of the first movies to come out after the pandemic. Yeah. You know, the pandemic that shut down so many movie theaters. Like Tom and Jerry. Uh, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Quick sidebar here. I risked my life to watch Tom and Jerry by going out to the theaters. You have been choosing the worst movies to risk your life for. Here's my review slash rant of Tom and Jerry. Warner Brothers Animation, talk about witnessing a studio climb up so quickly to critical praise with their own surprise hit, The Lego Movie, and just quickly spiral down. They milked the Lego property with Batman and Ninjago, which nobody saw, and then Warner Brothers was looking to see what other cartoons they can dish out and hopefully make a profitable franchise out of. Okay, so what do they own? Oh, perfect. Hanna-Barbera. Let's make Scooby-Doo be our scapegoat. Let's stuff as much characters and nonsense to kick off a Hanna-Barbera universe. Yeah, that didn't work out at all. And now we have Tom and Jerry, directed by Tim Story, which, why is this guy still making movies? Did nobody watch the first Fantastic Four movies? You would think. Ugh. Anyways, Tom and Jerry, it simply works as a short cartoon where a cat and mouse chase each other with weapons and causing violence and mayhem. Perfect. Love it. Good for the kids. But no, here we get two hours of boring human characters with a boring plot. And I believe Chloe Grace Moretz is a fine actress, but she hasn't been getting the best roles for a good while now. And... You get Michael Pena doing this terribly offensive accent for comedic effect. Why? He did an Ant-Man, and I guess from there on out, he's like, okay, I guess this is the way I can keep working. I mean, aren't we past this as a race, as a society, as a country? As It's caricature at this point. At least Scoob tried to do something. This did nothing. Have you ever watched nothing on screen before? Deep Blue Sea. That's the first movie that comes into my mind when have you ever seen a movie where you were just like, oh no, oh no. And I was so excited because Samuel L. Jackson was in it. And then he's there giving this big you know, speech about how you don't know ice. I survived the ice. Yeah, with the Alzheimer medication that they've been experimenting on these sharks and then they become super intelligent and they just destroy everybody there who's been researching this medication. And Samuel L. Jackson happens to be there and everybody's freaking out and he was like, sharks, sharks, you don't know ice. I survived a winter storm. And he goes into this full monologue that abruptly gets ended by a shark eating him. And then I was like, what? Oh, Interview with the Vampire. That was another one. Like, I thought the movie was almost over, and there was like an hour left. And I'm like, oh my god. What are you talking about? You are so off the mark on that one. I I could not stand that movie. Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Christian Slater, vehicle for River Phoenix before he passed away. Because he he had already shot like three shots. That's amazing. I didn't like it. Talk about such great material from Anne Oh, no, 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 no. We need to do a vampire thing. 
Well, let me tell you, Tom and Jerry, what it needed was some vampires to save this movie. But yeah, don't watch it. Even for the kids, just replay the classic cartoons for them. But, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. End of the rant. End of the review. Let's get back to the eighth wonder of the world. Now, King Kong, even through all its social flaws, you take all that away and you still have great characters. You have a great story. The effects are still look great to this day. And yes, the original, yes, Fay Ray, the incomparable Fay Ray. Uh, she ended up being cast in it. It was actually supposed to be Jean Harlow. And Jean Harlow ended up dropping out. And she's an icon. I don't know if any of y'all realize. And it's a huge throwback. Anybody who's also into Rocky Horror Picture Show, there's an entire song. Whatever happened to Faye Ray? And it's all about, uh, it's a huge nod to love them, uh, the, the drag queen and the transsexual LGBTQ. But yes, a huge icon of Fay Ray. And in the song itself, Frankenfooter actually says how he saw her on screen. He saw the way the clothes draped off her body and he just wanted to be her. And she was a huge gay icon of the time. And she's continued to support like throughout her career before she passed away to continue to support all of these rights and uh they actually brought her back for uh the king kong which i know we're going to talk about later she was supposed to be in the king kong uh peter jackson's king kong she had one meeting with naomi watts and she very politely said i don't think you need me in this film i was already in the real king kong movie oh exactly well fey ray was also offered Kate Winslet, uh, the older version of Kate Winslet in Titanic, and she turned it down. They fought so hard for her in that one, but I think she was at a point, uh, and she's such an icon that she can say yes or no to things. Here's a hot take. Anne and Frank's relationship, the two leads of the movie, they're more believable than any of the other relationships portrayed in future Kong movies. 100%. I haven't seen the others. Uh, I have seen bits and pieces about 2005, um... I haven't sat down and seen it all the way through, but I'll, I'll see if I agree with you too, which is wild for you to say that this is more believable than any other one. That's, that's wild. Now, maybe it's the performances for me. I mean, it's not an ideal relationship to start off and to have, but it works for me. I, I can't explain it, but when we talk about the future King Kong movies and comparing them to this one... You'll see why. I actually don't think it's that wild. Uh, nowadays, especially in the world of social media, we tend to put our best foot forward and we tend to put out, project what people want to see. But I think behind closed doors is a completely different story. And I think gender roles between men and women and between men and men and women and women, I think that those are all very private things. So I get what Dylan's saying. It actually does seem more realistic because I think behind closed doors, people, you know, they have their own relationships and um i definitely get what you're saying by this one works better and it's more believable they were both young they were both dumb and they were both in the jungle we've all been there <laughs> when in rome when in skull island Mm-hmm. well that's going to be it for us here but for those listening what are your thoughts on what we discussed let us know on our twitter facebook and instagram pages at cinema show live and use that hashtag cinema show live Give us your questions and comments about this episode, or maybe you just want a shout out. Either way, you're all part of the panel as much as we are. Jackson, where can we find you? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson underscore DML. And our lovely Lori, where can we find you? Hello. You can also find me on Twitter, lovely underscore Lori. And you can follow me on my personal Twitter at DylanMM5. That's right, D-Y-L-A-N-M-M-5. This is The Cinema Show. Remember, all films are subjective and it's all about perspective. Have a great day and a better tomorrow.